All right, so some intro matters. Uh, Athanasius, we're going to soon discover, was dealing with a lot of heresies and controversies within the church. And so I thought maybe we can just kind of get some discussion going about controversies. We don't, we don't have any controversies, so we're going to have to use our imagination here. What sorts of controversies, theoretically, hypothetically, would we be dealing with in our church today? What sort of things come to mind? So I'm going to tell you the biggest difference when I came here. Okay. I was raised in a Episcopal church, and we believe that communion is actually the blood and body of Christ. Okay. Okay. So that was a that was a huge controversy throughout church history. For as a child, I had a hard time under you know accepting that, and then I finally did, and then I come here. <laughs> okay, we're moving back to the whole transubstantiation <laughs> versus consubstantiation versus memorial. Yes, yes. It's been some blood spilt over that. Yeah. So so. The Lord's Supper, the ordinances, so to speak, baptism also has, it's not necessarily a controversy, so to speak, but it could be, I guess. It's a lot yeah. of culture creeping into into the church. Okay, My culture. Last three churches had female pastors, so that's okay. That's happening a lot. There's the whole... <coughs> the idea of who can serve as a pastor, an elder, who can't, yep. Right. <coughs> There's the whole issue of the whole transgender thing. Is yep. And, and Biblical understanding of human sexuality. Sexuality thing that's yep. creating a lot of division in, in a lot of the mainline churches. Yep, that's a big one. I guarantee if Athanasius realized we would be we'd be bumping our heads together about gender, marriage, and sexuality, I think his head would explode. He wasn't wearing his hat, his bishop hat in this picture, but if it did, it would blow off his head. <laughs> realize that. Yeah, definitely marriage, gender, and sexuality. Um, you know, we have the whole social justice thing critical race theory, all of that stuff. So there's lots. So we definitely still do have controversy in the church today. Hi, Ken. Hello. So are controversies good or are controversies bad? Let me think. Hi, Barb. Hello. Hi. Hello. Are they always bad? We think like controversy. I would say, no. I mean, if it causes you to, you know, kind of think about what you believe and yeah. look biblically as to why you believe it and not just... Yeah. I believe this because everyone else has believed this in generations past, because, you know, just tradition. Yeah. But really look biblically why you do the things that you do. Yeah, absolutely. If it, if, it, uh, if it causes us to clarify what we believe and why, right, then it's not a bad controversy. Actually, some of that is necessary. And that's what Athanasius believed as well. It does clarify true doctrine. Right. Of course, there is the bad side of controversy, which people automatically kind of go to and be like, oh, controversy is just divisive. It's needless fighting. Um, it, it, it's it's a shame that it has given our atheistic and, and agnostic and progressive Christians ammunition in the fight against us because they say, well, you Christians can't agree on truth anyway. So why should I even submit to truth? Right. So that's that's a big weapon in their gun, a big one that says, you know, you guys can't even agree on what truth is. And so you're going to tell me about truth in the gospel? So that's a negative side effect of controversy as well. But that doesn't mean we don't press in, because Mel's exactly right. Like, it does, does clarify truth, clarify doctrine. So how do we know the right hills to die on? Is it just, how do we know it's kind of, eh, not an important thing to be worried about? Or no, this is something we need to fight tooth and nail. This is very important. How do we tell what's what? How do we know what hill to die on? Is it, uh, I hate to ask it, is it, is it uh, it's going to affect uh, salvation? Yeah, that's a great way. Yep. Yeah. A first order issue. Is it going to affect salvation? Is it related to our salvation? Is it related to the gospel? And somehow, that's a great first question. There's First level doctrines, which would definitely be all about salvation and the gospel. Second level doctrines, which could be, you know, you could throw a mode of baptism in there, right? We're all called to be baptized, but mode of baptism might be something that we disagree on a second level. 
uh, certain things like eschatology, revelation, all of that stuff, what's exactly going to happen. And then you have like third level issues, which are more preference issues and things. So the hills that we die on are the first level, the first order uh, hills. It has to do with the gospel and has to do with salvation. There's a helpful book if you ever want one called Finding the Right Hill to Die On, and that's by Gavin Ortland. And he talks all about the idea of theological triage, which is like, okay, is this something worth fighting over or not? And why? And so something to think about. Controversy is, is necessary in a lot of ways. Hey there. All right. So that being said, let us look at uh, some biological... Oh, it's okay. Just, these are cushy right. seats up front. I already got it down. Yeah, okay. All right. I understand. He was born in 298. So, yeah, we're going way back. Or about 298. And he was born in Alexandria, Egypt. He died at the ripe old age of 75-ish on May 2nd, 373. And so some background. Athanasius was kind of like... Born at the perfect time in the perfect family in the perfect location for what he was called to do in the kingdom of God. He was born in a into a wealthy Christian family in Alexandria. So Alexandria was a hub for theology. There was massive libraries there. It was a center of academia for Christianity. It was also a crucial time for Christianity. There was doctrine being formed. There were all of these things that were being talked about. Massive first-level issue things that were being talked about. And he was kind of born into that, um, that environment. And also, the Roman Emperor Constantine had made Christianity the official religion and legalized it. And so now it was okay to talk about all of these things. In fact, it was encouraged within the Roman Empire. Um, and of course, didn't hurt being born into a wealthy family. That gave him a good um, education. So he had an excellent education in all of the classics as far as you know, Greek and as far as history and as far as philosophy and rhetoric and all of that stuff. So he had a great, he was born in the exact God-ordained time for what he was called to do. So he had 45 years of faithful service to the church of which he was exiled for 17 of those 45 years. And we're going to talk about that. Um, he, some of his famous publications, such as Against the Gentiles, or also could be Against the Pagans or the Heathens, just some of these lovely titles that you know, how to make friends and you know, influence people, right? Or uh, On the Incarnation. These things he was dealing with first-level issues like the Incarnation and the Doctrine of the Trinity. So big, big stuff, right? This is the, the kind of the, um, the time in church Christian history when orthodoxy didn't exist in and of itself, right? It was being pulled together. And when I say orthodoxy, it doesn't mean we were writing the Bible. It means we were kind of crystallizing what the Bible meant in a lot of these critical areas. So orthodoxy was the product of summarizing then all of these first level issues from the Bible. And he was known as the champion of orthodoxy and a pillar of the church. He was also recognized as a saint in the church and still is. Although I don't, I think he might be the only saint that didn't have a miracle that was claimed uh, to his name. But he did so much else for the church that he got promoted to sainthood. Um, so there's not much known about his conversion. Couldn't find anything, actually, about his conversion. So usually we have a big conversion slide that talks about all the things about conversion and how awesome that is. It seems like he was born into a Christian family. He studied Christianity, and he believed it. <laughs> Shocker. I love boring <laughs> testimonies like that. That's, that's the way it should be, right? Kids, they... <laughs> you know? There's nothing wrong with that. Be proud of your boring testimony, right? He was born into a Christian family studied the Bible, studied Christianity, and was like, you know what, this is true. And so we don't really have a whole lot to talk about. So just take that as a little encouragement. You, you that have a boring testimony, it's okay. And remember that every conversion is a miracle in and of itself. It doesn't matter if you were found in the gutter, addicted to crack, in the Manhattan somewhere, like, you know, and then were brought out of that and 
dramatic story of how you were converted. It's all dramatic. It's all a miracle that God saves any one of us. But he spends a lot of time talking about controversy. And there's uh, a slogan. I don't know if he actually said it, but Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. And at times he felt that he was taking on the world in a lot of these top-level issues. He was engaged in a lifelong battle in defense of a very minor topic in Christianity, the deity of Jesus Christ. And so talk about your first-level issues. This is a first-level issue, right? And so we'll spend some time on this because this is a massively important topic. It's massively important for us to know. His opponent was a man named Arius, who was a priest also in another region of Alexandria. And he began to teach that Jesus was a created being around the year 320. And he wasn't alone. And like I said, this was the time where orthodoxy was kind of coming and bubbling up and people were summarizing what the, the Bible says about these things and these important truths. And so a lot of these ideas were being talked about. But Arius might have been the most well-known. And so Arius could not wrap his head around the fact that the Bible says that Jesus was both God and man. And so he surmised quite logically, we've got to give him to that, give it, give it to him, that you can't be 100% both. So it must be just part. So he's, he's part man and part God, right? And you kind of could see logically how he would say that, right? But that's not what the Bible says. And so again, we go back to what the Bible says. The slogan that he said was there, there was a time when he was not. If Christ was begotten by the Father, then he was born and then became the Son of God. And then therefore there was a time where Jesus didn't exist and Jesus wasn't God. And you can kind of see again logically how he would get to that, right? So that was kind of the slogan. There was a time when he was not. And what also he couldn't figure out too was if Jesus was called the Son of God, then therefore he's subservient to his Father in that sense. So again, he wasn't quite at the same level of God the Father. He must have been some sort of sub-deity of the Father. This was a total, of course, attack on his deity and a first-level issue. Um, the bishops quickly condemned this as heresy, and he was deposed, yet he still started to gain some ground and still started to have some followers to this. Again, think of the environment where all this stuff is being talked about. So he would talk about this and guys would come alongside him and stroke their epically long beards like Athanasius there. And they would, they would talk about, yeah, you're probably right. I don't think he is 100% God. That couldn't be. And they talk about this stuff all day, right? Athanasius at that time was the secretary of uh, the bishop, the patriarch Alexander in Alexandria. So he was kind of the understudy. And Constantine, Mr. Christianity himself, called the Council of Nicaea, supposedly at one of his summer homes somewhere in now Turkey, and got together over 300 bishops and other attendees, including Arius and including Athanasius, who wasn't there as a bishop because he wasn't a bishop yet. He was there as a a scribe and a secretary, but he had already been engaging in these issues. He had already been thinking about this and writing on these issues. So this was the first ecumenical council that was called together. And the issue was very important. Is Jesus created out of the essence of the Father, or is Jesus a separate, his own deity, separate from the Father? Right? You think about the Trinity, right? Think about who is involved in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three of them are God, but yet they're all distinct in that, right? They all have, but yet they're all equal in their godness. Pastor, did they yeah. the Bible and we know it today at that time with Isaiah? Yeah. They did, okay. They did, they did. Okay. Yeah, by, by 300, they definitely, okay. it was, it was, the canon was probably really solid by 300. Okay. They had it, I would argue, probably a century before that as well. So, yeah, they definitely had all the books that we know, and more, probably, right, as the, as, the, uh, as the canon. So what happened in that is, is out of that shook out the Nicene Creed. 
right? Which is super duper important. And that was in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was born. And I know you guys all know the Nicene Creed, but this is what the Nicene Creed says. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and is invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Here's where they really start to nail this down. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and made man. He suffered on the third day. He rose again, ascended into heaven. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. Right. So you see in the middle there, that critical section of where they are really hammering this home, saying, no, this is Jesus. He is, he is begotten, not made, and being of one substance with the Father. That word substance was ground zero. That was, that was the bullseye of what this whole controversy was about. And it actually came down to one different letter in the Greek alphabet. It was, whether it's homoousian or homoousian, one letter that's different. One means that he is the, the same essence of the Father, the same substance. The other one means he's of a similar substance. And when they said, no, this is where we're going to stand. We're going to stand on the double O, homoousian. He's of the, the same substance and essence. And in so doing that, they did two things. They clarified that Jesus Christ was in fact God, and they condemned the Arian view as heresy. Right. After that, um, Alexander died not long after that, and Athanasius took his place as bishop. He was a shoe-in for that job. However, Arianism still continued to hold ground in various places. And so this was a fight that kept going and cost Athanasius a lot of time and trouble. So um, I wanted to talk about some observations and applications, right? So we've been throwing around the word orthodoxy. What do you guys think the word orthodoxy means? Ortho ortho. What's that? Ortho is bone. Ortho is bone? Okay. I don't know the entomology of that. That should be interesting to look up. So you're talking about your structure. There you go. Structure of it. Okay. Structure of the doctrines of the faith, right? Like those things that are essential, those things that are true, right? How do we know orthodoxy as Christians? From the Bible? Yeah, from the Bible. So that's really important because when we start talking about creeds, sometimes we can run to the creeds and say, okay, it's in there. But the creeds are only a summary of what the Bible says, right? So as Christians, our first and foremost source of orthodoxy has to be the Bible. Athanasius himself said, the scriptures prohibit in every light the Arian heresy. And so when he was going into it, he was he's basing this on the Bible itself. So absolutely. What scriptures can we point to? Bible sword drill. What are thoughts? That if your friend said, <laughs> oh, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. John 1.1, 1, 1. that was the first one I thought of as well, right? <laughs> Using another famous Greek word, right? Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus. Yeah. Right. Word became flesh. Yep. Later on, verse word seven. became flesh and dwelled among us, tabernacled among us, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What other scriptures would you go to if you were having a conversation with someone that said, yeah, show me in the Bible where it says Jesus is God, besides all the places in Matthew where he claims to be God. <laughs> that we've well, yeah. seen already. That's what I was just going to say, is Matthew where he claims to be God. Not to mention all the miracles and all that stuff, but what other thoughts? Other places you might go. Have you not seen the Father? You know, have you not seen yeah. the Father through me? You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Seen me, seen the Father. Right. Yeah. Don't know exactly where that was. Um, I was thinking of Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, verse 3, 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And sometimes in scripture too, we realize that maybe it's not saying like straight up like Jesus is God, but they're attributing God-like things to Jesus. And so ergo, like if he's upholding the universe by the word of his power, that seems like something that would fall as a bullet point under the job description of God himself. So... I still like Isaiah so much. What do you think it is? But you Isaiah 53? Because I always heard as in the scripture, as it was known, but I never knew where it was. When you did the lesson on Isaiah 53, it really clicked. Oh, okay. Okay. Isaiah 53? Absolutely. Um, I think of Philippians 2. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped again, but made himself nothing, being born in the likeness of men. Right? A lot of people would turn that around and say, well, that doesn't really prove it. It proves the opposite. But it's like, well, no, if he's going to do all these things, he's going to be God. And then therefore, if you keep going, he's even worshipped as God. God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, everybody yeah. would bow down. Those are God things. Yeah. You don't worship human beings. You yeah, worship God himself. Colossians, one of the most Christocentric books of the New Testament. Let's say Colossians what? 2.9. 2.9. in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Boom. Boom. Yeah. That's a good one. Doesn't get yeah. any clearer than that. Doesn't get any clearer than that. You are correct. So... Is this doctrine of the deity of Christ under attack today? Or is everybody pretty much like, yeah. Well, of course it is. <laughs> where yeah, is it? Just so you guys know, like, where where is it attacked? Well, the world attacks it. They say yep. Jesus was a good man or a good teacher or a prophet, yep. you know. But, yep. Nice yeah. God. Absolutely, the world would do it. Absolutely, atheistic or agnostic worldview would absolutely attack it. Is it attacked anywhere within the church? The book is just a story. Okay. In the Bible. The Bible okay. is just a story. So, interesting. So, maybe an attack on Scripture or maybe not having an authoritative stance on Scripture. Right. Like, that's so, true. Like, so where would we go to... If you're going to throw right. Scripture out as authoritative, then what... That's right. Just a story. So, yeah. it, it's not... Actual facts, or it's not infallible. Yep. It's a different ruler. You don't have the ruler. Yes. To, 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 no uh, standard. It's a standard. Pope is infallible. Only when he puts his ex cathedra hat on or something like that. I'm not sure how it works, but yeah. <laughs> Exceptions yeah. completely to make up as he becomes more yeah. in the public eye. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you guys heard of progressive Christianity? Mm-hmm. That's gaining a lot of traction from ex-evangelical crowd and the deconstructed crowd and all of that. The people that were born and raised in touchy-feely um, evangelical churches and are deconverting, no longer Christian, but they're actually just deconverting from their bad experiences in the touchy-feely evangelical church that probably didn't have truth to begin with. And now they're saying, yeah, and the Bible never says Jesus is God, and the Bible's not authoritative, and who are we to say what truth is, and we can't even know truth, and I don't believe in a God that would send people to hell, and hell probably doesn't exist anyway, and all of that stuff. So definitely under the progressive Christian um, variety. They don't believe in doctrine. They don't believe in truth. Question. So, yeah. The new movement that, that just um, focuses on the New Testament and tries to exclude the Old Testament. Yeah. How, how, how does that deal? How, how do they deal with, with Jesus' deity? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how you get past all the references to the Old Testament and the New Testament. So by and of itself, I don't understand how that's a logical position. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah, they say Stanley's son. Oh, yeah. He said and, we had to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. and he tried to clarify, I think, I didn't really say we got to get rid of it, but yeah, he backpedaled. But, but, but it's a big statement, though. It can really lead people astray. Yeah. Like, what are you gonna do? Rip out? Just take a Bible and just rip out the whole Old Testament? Yeah. Go Thomas Jefferson on it and just cut out the things you don't want. <laughs> yeah. Like. Just cut it out. Throw it away. Vote on it. Vote on it. Yeah. Just vote on it. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think they they sell this in the New Testament. 
Well, you see, yeah, and you you see in of that like we can kind of look into that pretty easily. It's like, oh, I like Jesus. Like Jesus is the nice guy who welcomes all people. The God of the Old Testament, he's cranky. He's killed millions of people, and you know he's got these weird laws about all this stuff. And you know, I like the New Testament, so let's stay with that. Yeah, like you can't you can't separate. Do a revelation. You know, yeah, that'd be a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, see, that's allegorical. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it, well, that's we can't true. cut out the parts of Scripture that we don't understand. And we're losing huge things. Like, the holiness of God in the Old Testament is like, how do we understand the holiness of God of what Jesus brings us to if we don't understand the holiness? It's such a fully orbed picture of God's wrath and his holiness and his purity and his plan and all of that that it's it's just imbalanced if we don't have the old testament even like jesus is like people who are like yeah jesus we, we like the new testament jesus is loving and all that like yeah he's so much more loving if you understand the law right so it's like okay exactly. yeah he is very loving yes. why though like why yeah. do you <laughs> absolutely it's a great point yeah we understand what we've been saved from yeah yeah, definitely. So we know orthodoxy first and foremost from the Bible, right? We have these things called creeds, right? Some of us are more familiar with creeds than others, right? If you were born into a denomination, right? Or a Reformed Baptist or something, right? You, you, you know the creeds. What would you say a creed is? How would you define a creed? Somebody said, what's a creed? It's I've a only gone to a non-denominational church my whole life. Statement of belief. A statement of belief. Yeah, it's from credo, right? I believe. This, this is what I believe. It's a, so it's a summary. It's a statement, right? When we read the Apostles' Creed in uh, first Sunday of the month, I usually say something like it's a crystallization of what the church believes about very important things. So it's a summary belief statement, right? You ever hear people say, I don't have a creed. My creed's the Bible. That's what my creed is. I'm not going to get caught up in all this denominational nonsense. <laughs> exactly. That's right. When when somebody says there is no absolute truth, like is that true? <laughs> okay. Why do people have a fear of creeds? Because it makes them take a stand. Okay. Makes them take a stand. Yep. It's uh, <coughs> what about the idea of just if you've not grown up with them at all, like. I mean, I think I think I recited some creeds at the church when I was growing up, but like, what if you never did that? Well, I, I was growing up Catholic, so we so didn't, you were we, all, we didn't do that. You did? Oh, okay. Not no. even Apostles' Creed? Wow. No. Okay. Not that I remember. We would do it very, very infrequently, and so it was very foreign to me. And so you have that knee-jerk reaction. Like, yeah. What is that? What about you? Did you have creeds? No, no, I don't know. <laughs> Pastor wore socks and sandals. I didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I didn't pay attention. <laughs> or maybe they sent you off by then. Yeah. So, the Apostles' Creed was about 200 A.D. One of the first creeds, right? Which we recite here every month. Really want to start doing the Nicene Creed as well, which we talked about. And then there's others like the Chalcedon Creed and other creeds that really what they do is they draw bold lines about those first two points, orthodoxy and heresy. Like, this is what the Bible says about these things, right? And anything that's not within this box then is therefore heresy, right? Heresy is, is something that doesn't agree with orthodoxy, which might be also called heterodoxy, right? It's the same, it's a difference, right? What are some heresies that we've come across, right? He's combating Arianism, which is... Talking about the Christ is not actually God. What are other heresies that we see around? Women or historically? Women. What's that? Women can marry women. Women can marry, okay. So uh, heretical ideas about uh, gender, marriage, and sexuality, for sure. Yep. Um, I can't, oops, sorry. Prosperity gospel Prosperity heresy. Gospel. And, and think about it from a salvation perspective, right? Prosperity gospel would really be a man-centered gospel, right? That's saying that God exists. God says Gnosticism. 
Rhoda's, I knew Rhoda would say Gnosticism. Hold that thought, Rhoda. Um, all the sisms. All the, any of the sisms, right? Yeah, Gnosticism holds to a radical dualism of good and evil. Believers, it's, you have to have this secret knowledge, some people say. Um, what about you have to be speak in tongues to be saved? Well, you're bordering on Pentecostalism, <laughs> um, which, yeah, in order to be saved part is the rub. That's where it would get into a heretical argument, right? Different, differing ideas of the gifts, we can kind of maybe hold that right. a little more open-handed. But in order for you to say, well, in order for you to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. That's where you probably cross the line into a heresy and say, well, now you're talking about salvation issues, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Any other isms? Christo mysticism. <laughs> it's just Rhoda's just texting you answers. <laughs> what are you gonna say? When uh, when Jesus uh, is God in the flesh, becomes God on earth, and, and God left heaven, became to earth. I can't remember the Docetism, perhaps. Uh, and well, he only seemed he transformed. He only seemed the human. Holy Spirit. And then he transforms back into God into heaven. So, so he's a transformer now. Yeah, right? he's a transformer. Well, there's a word, there's an ism for that, but I can't, there's an ism. I can't pull out the one. It, was it? Ask it was, I think you're talking about docetism. Where he seemed human, but he wasn't really. Was that deism? Deism is another one that God's not in control of all things. He's kind of the great watchmaker that's set it aside. It's that he's, there's not really three of them, also. There's only one. Modalism. 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 Thank you. As popularized by the shack. Modalism. Yeah, the idea that the members of the Trinity are not three distinct persons, but three different aspects of the same person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm God. No, I'm the Son. No, I'm the Spirit. (laughs) Bible doesn't say that. Last one, and then we'll move on. What about moralistic, therapeutic, Deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's very subtle. The idea that our our job as Christians is to be nice, and if we're nice, Jesus will do nice things for us. And so we are supposed to just Christianity is about being nice. It's more of a therapeutic, touchy-feely relationship between us and God. And our job is to just keep the rules. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. God is like my holy counselor, spirit, holy spirit counselor guy, right? He makes me feel good about myself. And where does salvation enter into that? It's really functional universalism, which is another big heresy, right? Functional universalism says everybody goes to heaven because everybody's nice. Where's Christian scientism? I don't know. I don't know Christian scientism. Scientist, well enough. I don't know. Anybody know? Isn't Tom Cruise a Christian scientist? No, no, he's no. Uh, Scientologist. It's different. Scientology. 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 Oh, he's Scientology. Yeah. I, that's yeah. what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's, that's definitely that's an L. Ron Hubbard invention <laughs> <laughs> from a, from a science fiction so, book he wrote and then went off the deep end. Periodical weekly periodical. Oh, that's our magazine. Yeah, being a little kid and seeing uh, like a Christian Science reading room and asking my mom like, "Why don't we go there?" Because we go to church. Um, I'm a Christian and a scientist. <laughs> I like Christian and science. Yeah. <laughs> but they're they're neither Christian nor science. Exactly. So they're neither one. It's false advertising. But going back to where we started with Arianism, right? The belief that Jesus isn't God. Which one are we on? Arianism, the one that Athanasius, Athanasius <laughs> oh, okay. spent his life fighting, <laughs> right? That Jesus isn't God. Why is that a hill to die on? Why don't we just say, mm-hmm. If Jesus isn't God, then he couldn't have defeated death when he took the punishment yep. we deserved. Yep. So if Jesus and, isn't God, we And he wouldn't have be been saved. the perfect sacrifice. Yep. He wouldn't have been the perfect sinless sacrifice. He couldn't have been. Yeah, what else? Therefore, there would not have been redemption. So no salvation. So no salvation. Mm -hmm. There's no ordinary man that can pay for our sins. Right? So he has to be God. And there's other little tentacles that come off that, right? 
talk about Hebrews, the eternal sacrifice. He doesn't have to do it every day, like all of the time after time after time. He does it once for all because he's eternal, because he's God, and he's perfect. And he can only pay that debt. It's so massive that only God could pay it. That's why he has to be God. What about he has to be human as well? Why is, why is that important? Suffer. What's that? He has to suffer. Yep. He had to actually suffer. As human suffer. So he, he paid that price in his human suffering as well. Yep. What else? What else is another big important reason why, why it can't be just one or the other? It was prophesied to be born. Prophesied to be born. Yep. So he fulfilled some of the Isaiah 53 things and, and all that. Got born through Israel. Yep. Through the line of David but to fulfill those. Sacrifice of blood, absolutely. He shed his blood, right? Going back to the old covenant and the sacrificial system, that was still the same, still needed blood to forgive sins. Now we have the perfect divine blood to forgive sins. What about our representative, right? Had to be make us, Hebrews says he had to be made like us in every respect, right? That was so he could represent us. He could be the, the, our federal head, so to speak, and say, no, I'm a human, 100% human, 100% God, and I'm God to pay the price, but I'm human to identify with them in that way. So, Also, he was willing. It was a willing yeah. sacrifice as well. Yeah. So, you know. Um, out of his own free will. Right? Out of his own free will. And out of his love. Mm -hmm. And he knew what he was going to go through before he even went. I mean, he knew. Yep. And still did it. I mean, if you and I knew we would have to go through any kind of pain, oh, suffering. Get it. I don't even want to go to the do, dentist. Do we even love that much? Yeah. 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 It's you tremendous know. love. Ephesians 2, right? Because of the great love in which he loved us. Yeah. Definitely. So all good things. So it is an absolute non-negotiable first level issue, which is why Athanasius said, yes, I'm going to die on this hill. I don't care if it takes me my whole life. I'm not going to give this up. And so we've got to realize those first level issues. Right? This is certainly one of them. The deity and the humanity, the dual nature of Christ is absolutely a first level issue. So, and it cost him big. It actually cost him, as we said, a lot of time in exile. He, exiled, he was exiled five times, totaling 17 years. And lots of it was just false charges and accusations from his opponents. So there's a cycle of him being exiled for a couple years. Uh, there were false charges that were levied against him. There was, of course, politics going on uh, right in the middle of all those 17 years. Constantine died, and then he, he, uh, the empire went to all of his stun, sons, which were named variation of Constantine, like Constantinius and Constantinius and Constantine. <laughs> And of course, that was craziness, right? Mm -hmm. Because now they're all vying for power. And so then the, the, all the buddies of Arius were like, hey, Constantinus, you know, you should really let Arius come back into the church. And they tried that. And if they do that, then it's like, well, that Athanasius guy, he's got to go. So, you know, all of that stuff, uh, all his buddies and all of his, uh, the buddies of Arius and his opponents of Athanasius uh, succeeded five times. And getting him at one time, um, there was one more power grab against Athanasius. The military was sent in during a service. They were the military was actually entering the church to arrest him, and he refused to be arrested until all of the people, all of his parishioners, could leave the church safely. He wanted to make sure his church got out first, and then he said, "Okay, now I'll go with you." Unfortunately, that didn't really help the church because pretty much the next week the military came back and kind of killed a lot of people. The severe persecution that was happening, right? He, uh, he ended up with more friends, people like the desert monks. He was completely protected and hidden. Um, but one of the best things that he did is he did not waste his exile at all. He wrote tremendously throughout all of these times, kind of like the Apostle Paul. Like during his imprisonment, he just continued to write, continued to write. And John on Patmos. Yep, and John on Patmos. So, you know, we think about this, and we're kind of obviously glossing over it, but, you know, how strongly do we hold to our convictions? Like, if, if something for us is a first-level order, first-level conviction, 
how strongly do we hold to that? And are we willing to really pay the ultimate price for that conviction, right? We kind of have to be as Christians, right? If that's what we're saying, or we're just going to throw the whole thing out the window. Like, do we really believe Jesus is God and he's the only way to the Father? And those are big statements, right? We say them in the safety of our church, but they're huge statements and they've cost people their lives over the course of church history. So once we know something is a first order issue, we have to hold to that no matter what. But another related question is, do we know why we believe what we do? And again, that's why I kind of brought us to the Bible, to be able to know why we believe what we do. So not only do we know the first level issues, the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, do we know why we can't let those things go? And then last, uh, maybe consideration, what do we do during our trial time? When we are, whatever, we're laid up with cancer or something, or we're whatever. Do we still consider that I still have a calling, I still could be doing things, I still could be building up myself, I still could be building up others, I still could be building up the church somehow. Doesn't mean we're out of the game, right? Imagine if Athanasius, remember Luther, when he was hidden away in the castle, what did he do? He translated German into Hebrew, Hebrew, sorry, the other way around, Hebrew into German, right? <laughs> it's like, and then they have their Bible when he came out. He's like, so wait, put me in prison, but I just translated the Bible. <laughs> so yeah, so some things to think about there. Any other thoughts as far as what Athanasius went through and his exile? He was determined to work remotely. I mean, come on, that's <laughs> funny right there. How is the Wi-Fi out there? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You're streaming on. All right. So, uh, last but certainly not least, there were some thoughts from. Uh, John Piper, in his book, that kind of are very Piper-like thoughts, and some of them are his thoughts, and some of them are kind of like my summary of his thoughts, because Piper can get a little wordy sometimes. But there's some really good things in here to kind of have us um, think about. Um, first, defending and explaining doctrine is for the sake of the gospel, which we've been talking about, but it's also for the sake of everlasting joy. Pretty sure it was Athanasius that said anything that's worth fighting over is worth rejoicing over. Right? That idea of this is not just an academic exercise here. This is not just I believe this and I'm going to be proved right intellectually. This is something that has tremendous value to me as a person because this is my salvation. Right? And if it's worth fighting and dying over, it's worth rejoicing over before we have to... Uh, Take that stand, that ultimate stand, right? There is no salvation if Jesus Christ is not God. That's, that's the big why in all this. Um, so yeah, so it's, I just want to separate that. It's not just something that is an intellectual argument. It has to be something that's emotional and attached to our hearts with passion, right? Another one, another consideration in, in our call to controversy Loving Christ includes true propositions about Christ. And to kind of explain that a little more, if we say, yeah, I will die for the cause of Christ. Which Christ? What, what Christ are we talking about here? Christ of the Bible. Christ of the Bible, right? And so, sure, yeah, we could... We could say, no, this is a first level issue. Christ is my savior. I will die for Christ. But are we sure we've got the Christ of the Bible, right? And unless we can clarify that through doctrine, right? And an orthodox doctrine, we don't know what we're dying for, right? So yeah, so Christ is certainly worth dying for. The Christ of the Bible is certainly worth dying for, right? Not... Jesus, the guy with the 80s feathered back hair and the lamb on his shoulders, you know? 
right? He's just a nice guy, right? This was a really cool one. The truth of biblical language must be vigorously protected with non-biblical language. And at first I was like, what? That makes no sense at all. Truth of biblical language must be vigorously protected with non-biblical language. And there was a great quote that really made it click for me. It was this guy, Hanson, said this. Theologians of the Christian church were slowly driven to a realization that the deepest questions which face Christianity cannot be answered in purely biblical language. Because the questions are about the meaning of the biblical language. Right? So we could say... Yeah, so we could say whatever we want. Um, Christ is God. Okay, but we have to define those terms. Like, and, and what do you use to define those terms? Well, you use non-biblical language to define those terms, so we understand those things, right? We have to refuse to let explanatory confessional, or I'm sorry, but in refusing to let explanatory confessional language clarify what the Bible means, the slogan can be used to say something else that the Bible doesn't mean if we don't understand what those terms are. And so really how we understand and explain the truth of biblical language is with non-biblical. Like think about it. How do you explain propitiation? You, you gotta use other words to explain propitiation, right? Forgiveness, any, any, any big justification, right? Sanctification, all these big Bible words, right? That's what we're talking about here. And so we've got to use other language to explain these truths that are central to us. Any other big terms that, that come to mind that are critical first level terms? I just had a lot of them, but what other things are critical top level issues that if you went to the average person on the street and said, justification, they'd be like, or sanctification. What? Sanctification, right? Glorification. Absolutely. By that. Yep, exactly. One of the biggest, biggest things we have to do all the time is define terms. Always. What are you talking about? How did you come to that understanding? What do you mean by that? When we're talking with people that want to come against these ideas, right? Define terms. But yeah, absolutely. Glorification. What does that mean? Salvation. Yeah. Salvation. Exactly. Salvation, Salvation itself. From what? Salvation from what? Why do we need to be saved? Who are we being saved from? Right? Which in itself, like this gets into the modern uh, expression of this, Christianese. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I drive by that church off Munsonhurst and it says Jesus saves. And I always wonder, like, do people know what he saves from? I mean, mm -hmm. it's a fine thing to say, Jesus saves, but like, does the average person driving by know why they need to be saved? I think that's half the battle, as most people think they're perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. better than that guy over there. Right? Yeah, I yeah. do a great job of rationalizing my sin. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm no Hitler. I mean, you know, I haven't killed anybody. Not yet. <laughs> I don't plan on it. <laughs> right? But that's the modern expression of that in Christianese. It's like we can be guilty of that, too. I kind of have our own little language within these walls. And we don't define our terms. So it's like, how is that helping us? Right? And you can be a Christian your whole life and be spoon-fed these terms and not know what they mean. I think the key to Christian growth and, uh, uh, is to take that doctrine and to give it application, real-life application. Yeah. And uh, th th that's what moves people because, yeah, the doctrine can really be boring, and, 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 and you have to apply it to every day. Yeah. And, and um, you have a gift to do that. Well, that's the, the non-biblical, right? The non-biblical language or application. Like, the why does it matter? Mm. You know? Ooh, catechism. Catechism. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be a denominational church yet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which one. <laughs> what exactly is a catechism? Good mints, cough drops. I got everything right here. Oh, okay, cool. A um, couple others just to think about. Um, press into even long-held differences with freshness. Right. This was 
Think about this. This was 300 years, pretty much, that people were trying to figure out on a, on a doctrinal level, on an orthodoxy level, like what the church meant by Jesus was fully man and fully God, right? And you might think like poor Athanasius would be like, well, I'm not, I'm not tackling that one. This has been talked about for hundreds of years. They'll figure it out eventually. But no, he wasn't, he wasn't scared of that. He pressed in anyway, right? So just because something has been held for a long time among Christians doesn't mean that it's insignificant or that we shouldn't seek to press into it with a freshness, right? Um, we should push the boundaries of creating biblical categories of thought that aren't present. Like, that's where it gets really scary, though. It's like, when we talk about, okay, let's, let's define the Trinity. Well, let's first of all try to define it from Scripture, right? But how do you bring freshness to a doctrine so that you can understand it without changing <laughs> the nature of it and the definition of it? That's where it gets scary. That's where a lot of people go off the rails as they change the definition of it. People have to know, Christians have to know, why that matters. Yep. When a rubber meets a road. Absolutely. I mean, you can just sit in church for years and years and years, and you can hear, you know, the Trinity, you know. Uh, but uh, right. put it in real-life experiences, and why does, what right. does it really do for you? You know what I mean? And, you can recite all these things, but it's got to go from your head to your heart. Yeah. You have to think about those things in fresh ways. Yeah. Right? But not new ways, I guess is no. what I'm trying to say. No. Right. And yeah, you can't redefine the, no. the terms or misdefine them. Yep. Because that's what cults do. Yep. And, you know, Kingdom of the Cults makes that very clear. Yeah. But you could take Scripture to prove Scripture to prove Scripture... Right. And that's why when you preach, uh, uh, you move around and, and you have Scripture support Scripture. Yeah. Old and New Testament. Right. And, 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 and that's what gives it life. Right. It, with application. You know, absolutely. That stands to someone who believes on the authority of Scripture. Right? Correct. Yeah. But if we take that out of that, yeah. right? And it's like, why does this matter? You never talk to somebody and say like, well... How do, how, I'm not a sinner. And then you go to the Bible and try to show them they're a sinner. And you're like, okay, I don't care what that says. <laughs> like, that means nothing to me. You know, I don't even believe that's real. You're, come up with something else. And so now you're like trying to figure out how you can talk about sin in a, in a true way, but a fresh way, right? Mm -hmm. So that people get it. And sometimes truly he it. You hit you hit a bank because uh, a, a solid wall because you know um, uh, you know you, you talk about um, gender you know what I mean and homosexuality well you whip out the Bible and you and yeah. say Genesis you know but sometimes you have to agree to disagree because uh, you got a different ruler I mean uh, they don't want to hear about the Bible exactly you know and uh, yeah but um, so it's, it's you, important you when tell you tell me how. how you know, how, how do you think we procreate? You know what I mean? I mean <laughs> don't I bring mean, logic into it. I'm, I'm missing something. There, there you you say, logic don't back. use, you know, don't use Genesis, but, you know, how does this work? You know right, what I mean? and that's exactly what I'm okay. trying to say. Tell me something I don't know or I missed. Yeah. But but uh, you're right. Uh, if you don't use the same ruler, right. you, you're talking... Yeah. So and, it's and super it's funny how they want to call Christians science deniers until they are ready to deny science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's when we're engaging with people outside the faith, apologetically or evangelically, right? We have to have those categories because we can't really, I mean, we have to use scripture, we want to use scripture, but they're not always going to recognize scripture as authoritative, right? So we have to have ways of communicating these truths in kind of non-biblical ways. But also for ourselves, we need to know why we believe what we believe, right? Some of these issues, too, these social issues, we look at them, like some of them are, are not even, uh, in my mind, sometimes I'm like, well, I don't even need the Bible to disagree with this. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like. Right. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's illogical. It's, yeah. Yeah. And homosexuality is one of them. Like, I, I don't even need the Bible to think why that's a bad idea for society. Yeah. You know, <laughs> abortion is another one. It's like, okay, let's kill all our children. 
that's just illogical. The Supreme sense. Court interview yesterday uh, defined the term oh, I saw, woman. I saw that. She refused to define the term woman. She's not a biologist, though. I could, yeah. I could. I'm not a biologist. Yeah. yeah. I read that. I read it twice. <laughs> you are. Uh, you know, but, but, that, but that, that's progressive. That's when you have a worldview that is so inconsistent. And now she's forced into a corner and she has to define it. She has to hold up this thin veneer. As ridiculous as this sounds to everybody, she's got to be true to that worldview, right? So, but it looks ridiculous. She's very intellectual. <laughs> she's very, very smart. So she knew exactly yeah. if she gave a, a true Webster Dictionary uh, uh, citation of a woman, yeah. you know what blows a hole in, uh, in the whole thing about sexuality? Yeah. Blows a hole. Yeah. She's smart. Yeah. Katie's smart. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the, the last one and one of the greatest ways that we can um, kind of think about some of these things with freshness is read the old dead guys. That's part of my secret motive for doing all this is I hope that you guys read the old dead guys because they don't think like us. Your old dead friends. Well, all my old dead friends. They don't think like 2022 Americans. And so when you read them and you read the Puritans and you read Athanasius and you read these things, it's just like, that's amazing. I never thought of it like that because they're coming at it from a completely different perspective. And so that's one of my, my secret aspirations is that you read a lot more old dead guys. There's a glue that's held the church together yeah. through centuries after centuries after centuries. Yeah, you realize there's kind of nothing new in many ways. It's just different. It's like... Oh, you uncover some new heresy. It's like, well, no, that's just a reload of modalism or something, you know? And how do they think about it in yeah. 300 AD? So. Old dead guys. I don't think I'm going to read them on my own. <laughs> <laughs> Piper says that um, they unsettle him when he reads them. Some of the things that they say. And he said, Athanasius unsettled me in some of the things that he said. And that was a good thing because it caused him to wrestle with some of this and go deeper in that. Like, do I believe this? Why do I believe this? Why did he say it like that? So. Could, could you, Pastor Mike, just repeat, you said, push the boundaries of biblical categories without changing the meaning of it? Or did I get that wrong? Um, I was kind of summarizing a quote. Let me see. This have pushed the boundaries of creating biblical categories of thought that are not currently present. Yeah. And the idea of, yeah, how do we, how do we think about things in a fresher way, right? And, and that's what I hope we do here through preaching expositionally, right? Otherwise, I, I don't want this to be an echo chamber, right, of these Christianese kind of sayings, right? And one guy said, if you want to grow a church, just like keep saying safe things because people will come and be comfortable, right? And Christianity is not safe. It's not, you know, we're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to be changing. We're supposed to be thinking about these things while not changing the meaning of them, right? Because there's plenty of that going on. I think that was it. Okay. Any other final questions, comments, encouraging remarks? Yeah. Is that old dead guy a Catholic saint? Like, yep. Will I see a statue of him if I go into church? Or... I believe you will. <laughs> yep. Both Catholic and uh, old Orthodox uh, before, as well. Before yeah. The yeah, both sides. Both yeah. Sides. Oh, yeah, because he was in, yeah. Before the split. Yeah. The great schism. Yeah. Yes, I believe he is a full, full fledged Catholic saint. And I'm pretty sure that he didn't perform a miracle that was usually in order to be a saint you have to have a miracle attributed to you pretty sure he didn't have one but he's just done so much for <laughs> obviously such a top level issue right they, they the so we're all saints <laughs> well there's that <laughs> the Oops. difference between the catholic saints oh, oh yes and the new testament saints Yes. <laughs> Paul called the people in the church in Corinth saints. It's right. like, wow. There's hope for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is called a saint, according to the New Testament. But yes, in the Catholic definition of the world, I believe it is Saint Ignatius. He's in my saints book here, Lives of the Saints. So he's in here listed as Saint Athanasius. I said Ignatius, sorry. We'll get to him eventually. Too many us's. All right, well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time where we can think about, um, Lord, these top-level issues, and first and foremost being the deity of your Son, the full deity, the full humanity of Jesus Christ, why both of those things are absolutely essential, why your word um, confirms that, and why our salvation is dependent on that. Lord, we give you praise um, for the plan of salvation which included you giving at, at great personal cost um, your own son who put on humanity, uh, not at the cost of the removal of his deity, Lord, but a nature that allows him to be our representative and to be our sympathetic high priest and to suffer for us and, and understand what it's like to be a human, but also to be fully and truly God who can pay that sacrifice that we could never pay and pay it eternally and, and also be risen from the dead. And so, Lord, we look forward to celebrating that truth in a couple weeks um, at Easter. And so, Father, uh, cause these truths to go down deeply in our hearts and in our minds. Dismiss us with your blessing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.